Hello creatives, Jay here and you are listening to episode 9 of 99% Perspiration. We're a weekly podcast bringing you interviews and advice with today's creative and artistic professionals so that you can get the confidence and the know-how to become tomorrow's. On today's 99% Perspiration. I sit down to draw and it takes me an hour or two, three sometimes before I'm relaxed into it. You know, I find it incredibly hard for the first hour or two, and I just have to keep doing it and rubbing things out and drawing it again. And then after a while, after about three hours or so, almost forget you're doing it and it just starts appearing. Brian Talbot is a heavyweight in the world of British graphic novels. He's become well-known and well-loved for his work, including The Adventures of Luther Arkwright, The Granville Series, and Alice in Sunderland. If they want to get into BBC, and commercial radio, even though things have changed, it's still there are lots of barriers put up. What we find with community radio is that people can pretty much get on air pretty quickly. And Caroline Mitchell, a senior lecturer of radio at the University of Sunderland. Her life and her passion has centered around community radio. She's become well known for starting Femme FM, a female radio station in Bristol. She was one of the first people to bring community radio into the UK. If you want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at 99podcast or head to the official website 99podcast.com. In the fresh morning sun. I'm always a bit stunned when people ask for advice on, uh, you know, how to get into comics and that, because I don't really know these days. I mean, I know how I got into comics, but uh, I think it's, it's, it's a lot tougher now. Um, I mean, when I started, I, I, I was very into underground comics when I was at college. And before that, comics by people like Robert Crumb and Gilbert Shelton. And uh, when I was at college doing graphic design, I started doing my own comic, underground comic, just for fun. And when I finished college, I was unemployed. So I, I thought, I might as well finish this comic, because there's nothing else to do. I was applying for jobs. It was during the 70s, in the Depression. I mean, you know, I was applying for jobs as a dustbin man and all sorts of things. I couldn't get a job. So anyway, I did this comic and hitched down to London and um, met up with this guy I hadn't met before in London who ran a, ran a shop called Alchemy in London that sold sort of bongs and rizzlers and, you know, beads and stuff like this. And uh, he'd said before, well, if you ever do a comic, I'll publish it. He'd never published a comic before, but uh, after about, this about three years later, I'd done this, I did this comic and went down, hitched down to London because that broke, I couldn't afford the bus. And um, I found him eventually, and uh, and I said, do you remember, you said you'd publish a comic if I, I ever did it. And he said, no, I don't. <laughs> and anyway, I showed him the comic, and he, he looked through it, and he said, right, let's go and find a printer. And that was the first one, Brainstorm Comics number one, that it became. We ended up doing about six. But, you know, doing underground comics, I mean, there's no money in it, there's no money in it, really. But by the end of about four years five years editors were asking me to do stuff i was being approached by uh, editors um, such as this magazine called ad astra which is a science fiction science fact magazine they were just starting up and they approached me to do a monthly strip for them and i did a sort of spoof science fiction strip um sounds i don't know if you remember sounds it was like nme it was like a music newspaper 
Um, I did a weekly strip in, in that for, for about a year. And then I got offered work on 2000 AD, so I um, that's about the point I went full-time professional. And uh, it was about 30 years ago, and uh, it was over 30 years ago, actually. And I've been self-employed doing writing and drawing comics ever since. But today, I mean, how, how I'd advise people to get into comics, I don't know. It's a matter of targeting which sort of comic you think your work would go in and then just um, finding out who the editor is and mailing samples to them, basically. But other than that, it's just practice and doing it because the more you do it, the better you get. And um, the better you get, the more likely you are to find work. I mean, you're right, you know, your, your title is 99% perspiration. The... Um, the enjoyable bit doing comics is the 1% inspiration. You know, the actual coming up with the ideas for the stories, writing the stories, that's the thing I really enjoy. Creating a story, plotting it out, structuring it, um, thinking of all the different scenes and the characters and the amazing things that you can put in. You know, you're practically rubbing your hands, you know, going, oh, that's great, that's great, that'll look great in the comic, or that'll be great. That's the fun bit. And then the drawing bit... I just enjoy it when it's finished, but uh, actually doing the drawing is quite hard work. And it very often requires a lot of research and uh, it's extremely time consuming. Which is why I work, you know, till nine every night, seven days a week if I'm at home. So it really is the 99% perspiration, <laughs> um, the drawing bit. I mean, the, the writing takes, it varies depending on the story and depending on what, you know, what sort of ideas you have can take quite a while but sometimes as in with the first Granville book um, I got the inspiration very I mean the inspiration for the entire book came in a flash and I thought about it for a week while I was doing other things and I sat down at the end of a week and started typing up the script and I typed it all in five six days Type it was like taking dictation it was great the characters were speaking to me I could see everything unfolding in front of my eyes. It was amazing. Never usually happens like that. And then it took me a year to draw it. So you can see a bit of a difference in, in, in that. The Granville books, I've um, the fourth one came out in uh, November, Granville Noel. They're a series of uh, anthropomorphic steampunk detective thrillers with uh, starring Detective Inspector LeBrock of Scotland Yard. Who's a badger, you know, of course, because you, you, you can't go wrong with a badger with guns for your hero, you know, that's my motto. And the fifth one's scripted, but I'm, that's sort of on hold until I finish drawing Murray's third graphic novel, which I'm working on now. You know, I'm very methodical the way I, I write, I, you know, I collect, I spend ages collecting notes usually. Um... I, this one I just mentioned that came all in a big flood of creative sort of inspiration is very rare. Um, I have a folder over there with the ideas for story I've been thinking about for about 20 years and it's still not reached the critical mass, you know. it's um, So I gather, I usually gather lots of notes and do bits of research and um, eventually get to a point where I, where I can start structuring the story. And I always, that's the first thing I do, structure the thing as a whole. And um, on big pieces of paper, <laughs> uh, so I can see the whole book before my eyes. I can see each scene by scene, and move them around, and do draft after draft of the structure. 
And once you've got the structure, with you know, which, you know, the, the, the books, or ones I do, they always have a very tight structure. Um, it's then, you know, just a matter of typing, you know, type it, going to the typewriter, doing the full script, which is like page one, panel one, and describing what's on panel one, what people are saying, and then working your way through the book. And I find very often the scenes write themselves when you get to it. You know, you get to a scene and I, I know from my structure in this scene, I've got to introduce this, uh, this has got to happen, and uh, I've got to foreshadow an event that's coming later. Um, so it's just a matter of, you know, creating a, a conversation that sort of um, does this or a, a series of events that do this within this scene. And sometimes things, you know, start to happen you didn't think were going to happen when you start writing that scene. I have a scene in Granville, this dinner party in uh, Gran, in the third Granville book, Granville Bet Noir. And at this dinner party, as I'm writing it, two of the characters start flirting with each other. I didn't envisage this, you know. Um, <laughs> I didn't see one of them extremely embarrassed, you know. And, um, I hadn't thought of this when I started writing this and in another scene, I mean, LeBrock, he's got, you know, he, he comes out with some great expressions. And sometimes, I mean, there was one bit where I, 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 I'm typing his dialogue. And he suddenly came out with a line. I just burst out laughing. You know, I, I didn't expect him to say that. And it was funny. And so sometimes, yeah, you can, they just sort of, the characters start taking over. And you can hear the voice, you know, you can hear, you know what they would say in certain situations. But uh, Alice took a lot of, work on the structure. I think I was working on the structure for about six months. I mean, solid. It was, it was you know, seven days a week, all day. And I went through draft after draft of it. And you know you've read it. It look, it appears to be on the surface. It's like a stream of consciousness sort of thing. It just sort of one event flows into the next and it looks like it's meandering all over the place. Uh, it's not. Underneath that, there's a rock-solid structure. That was the hardest structure I've ever done. Because it had to be to contain all this stuff and to introduce the different elements and the different bits of information exactly at the point the readers were prepared for them. That was one of the hardest things to do. You know, I had to foreshadow things. I couldn't introduce things from left field, but at the same time, it all had to appear spontaneous. And it, because the thing is, the book Alice in Sunderland, like Alice in Wonderland, it's actually told using dream logic. I had to do that at the same time, have it building up to, you know, a satisfactory story, a series of stories, interlinking stories. So, yeah, the structure for that took forever. The good thing about using a computer is that everything's infinitely changeable. But the worst thing about a computer is everything's infinitely changeable and you'll carry on doing it and trying to improve things, you know. It's bad rat, which is coloured in watercolour. I used to be able to do about two pages a day colouring that. It takes me a full solid day to do a page of Granville colouring. Because it's, it's like doing fully painted artwork digitally on using the Wacom tablet. And if potentially someone is interested in going into this area of work, would you ever recommend getting an office somewhere in a different building? Yeah, I know people who do that, yeah. Um, obviously you have to be earning money before doing that <laughs> you have to be able to hire hire it but yeah I, I do know some comic artists and they prefer to actually go out to work you know so they'll hire a, 
um, an office and go out and uh, knock off at six o'clock and come back. So they, they're not working if they're at home. It's as I said, I like working at home. So, but they're like, I think they do it as a way of uh, cutting, you know, being able to cut off from it. And but I don't. <laughs> I wish I hadn't been so lazy when I was a teenager. <laughs> it's incredibly lazy. As you know, I I did I did read a lot, I think, but I didn't do much. Apart from you know the art classes at school, uh, I didn't tend to draw very much. I know if I'd have drawn a lot more, you know, in my spare time as a teenager, I'd have uh, I'd be a much better artist now because that's that's sort of a point you learn faster when you're younger. And I've since I've spent since then, you know, um, still learning, you know, about how to do it. I, I think I'm a slow learner, you know. If you look at my early work. I was in my twenties. It's I don't think it's very well drawn at all. You know, it gets gradually better, you know, over the uh, over the years. Would you say you you still learn every year? Oh yeah, yes, definitely, definitely. Feel like there's a lot to learn. I'm still learning. I still find it hard to draw. I still every day when I'm drawing, um, I sit down to draw, and it takes me an hour or two three sometimes before I'm relaxed into it. You know, I find it incredibly hard for the first hour or two and I just have to keep doing it and rubbing things out and drawing it again. And then after a while, after about three hours or so, that's the good bit because after that you sort of almost forget you're doing it and it just starts appearing. It's, it's, it, but I, I still have to do that every day. It's amazing, isn't it? Every day I have to sort of struggle to get into that sort of frame of mind. Oh yeah, you have to just keep staying there, keep on doing it and do it and re rub it out draw it again, rub it out, because that's what we do, you do it in pencil first and then you ink it, or whatever, um, using watercolour on this uh, new one. Yeah, um, I'll suggest reference is very good to use, research, you know, for clothes and things like this. Digital cameras uh, are very useful, if you, if you, for example, you get stuck, you're you, you drawing your hands in certain positions, and you get stuck with it, or with a digital camera you just put it on self-timer, pause it and there you've got a picture of the hand in the right position you can just draw from the back of the camera um, yeah digital cameras are a good uh, useful tool the humble beginning of the patchwork a big thanks to Brian Talbot and not in the least because he took me into his studio in his house downstairs where wall to wall it's covered in memorabilia and books with other artists that he's worked with and it's a big wonderful jumbled mess of a studio it's great to see the environment that a graphic novelist is as high caliber as brian works in so thank you once again brian for letting me into your space And since Caroline Mitchell, our next guest, since her background, her interest, her research is all in community radio, here's a shout out for the two community radio stations that broadcast us weekly. You should definitely check them both out. They are awesome. So a huge thank you to Spark FM, who broadcast us every Monday at 2 p.m., and to Hive Radio, who broadcast us every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. And if you want to check them out online, here are their Twitters, at Spark Sunderland, and at radio underscore hive. My name is Caroline Mitchell. I'm a senior lecturer in radio at the University of Sunderland. Um, radio. I started getting interested in radio when I was a student. 
um, I was on a media course, found television a little bit um, busy and, and too many people to get things done, too complicated issues at that time. This We're talking about um, late 70s. Big issues with the technicians not wanting to give equipment to women. Would you believe it? Always prioritising the boys. And I found I was much more independent in radio and I, all I needed was um, a ewer, which was the reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder we used at the time, and um, my editing block. And um, I, we were cutting tape at the time and um, I was quite independent. So really got into radio, loved listening to it, always had, um, really enjoyed um, being able to do things quite quickly in radio and um, thought it was a really brilliant medium both to listen to and, and to start sort of working in. Um, so yeah, that, so uh, radio, um, I knew about it since, yeah, I was about 18, I suppose, 17, 18. And, um, Met, the people I met in the early days of my career in radio, um, uh, they were sort of radio people, I liked them, we got on well, and I very quickly met people who were not just involved in BBC and commercial radio. I very quickly, through a series of fortuitous meetings and also a bit of research on my part, I met people who had experience of radio um, abroad in um, Australia, in Canada and in the States and they were doing a different kind of radio to the one that I'd been presented with when I started learning about it and they were doing something called community radio which was sort of completely different to BBC, much less stuffy, much more let's do the show right here and it didn't matter who you were and um, I realised very early on that I wanted to work in, in the community sector, the third sector, the alternative sector, um, because I was, you know, when I was um, 18, I was becoming politicised, I was um, experiencing um, sort of second wave feminism, and um, I realised at the time that BBC and commercial radio were really not the, the place for um, people like me. Um, so uh, I sort of went straight into the, uh, a sector that didn't exist in the UK, so that was interesting in it itself. Then spent about 20 years campaigning to get a legal funded community radio sector and um, spent a long time setting up little stations here and there uh, under the kind of either pirate ones or uh, legal small-scale short-term licenses that we were allowed to do so that's my training ground really was um, you know in fields uh, usually in the southwest of England um, including Glastonbury um, getting working with people to put transmitters up and fix up little studios and then do you know do do radio with whoever was around um, so that was the very early days and then um, living in Bristol in the early 90s, teaching radio, doing all these campaigns, still feeling that what I was listening to on the radio was incredibly male. I mean really 1991 in Bristol um, there were probably two ILR stations, there's BBC, there was BBC Local Radio and what you were listening to was almost entirely male. Um, all the DJs were male. There was about one, uh, Annie Nightingale was the only female night, uh, DJ then. 
the reason I, I set up with with a group of um, women, actually 200 women in Bristol, um, a women's radio station, and uh, that was called Fem FM, and it was we we really just did it to prove that we could and that. Um, every single thing on the station, not not just the presenters, but you know all the programs, all the management of it, the advertising and um, you know the marketing, uh, the technical side, um, we did ourselves, and we did it to say this is possible, because we were fed up with people saying oh, women aren't interested in being DJs. We don't, you know, they don't apply for these jobs. Blah blah blah. So, 20 years fast forward, we had an event that looked back at what FemFM did and actually we traced some, uh, we, we contacted as many of the women, the 200 women, and uh, we got them all together for a sort of reunion. And what we found, of course, is that women had gone into all sorts of jobs and were quite high up now in BBC and things like that. But the general feeling was, yes, lots has changed for women lots has changed and for instance there is now a 200 plus stations in the community sector so women have an access point now to get experience that they didn't have all those years ago um, but as we know from the research that was published and Tony Hall's proclamations you know we, there was still a problem and so um, what I've been doing over the last sort of year or so is getting more involved in sound women and also raising money to do training courses for women um, in in Bristol and also we're, we're looking at doing them elsewhere. I suppose it's all about um, doing training and um, helping people to learn about radio in a way that is friendly to them and um, because as people listening to this will know the media industries tend to be a bit hyped up and, and competitive and everything's got to be done now you've only got to look at something like you know that program about the BBC W1A you know to that the pace of life is is mad in the BBC and actually um, I'm interested in a different culture for learning about media I'm and I found that lots of people don't thrive in that culture Community radio stations are a great sort of way of getting involved very quickly because what people will often find if they want to get into BBC and commercial radio, even though things have changed and people are a bit more open these days and there are internships and there is this and that, it's still there are lots of barriers put up. And I think what we find with community radio is that people can pretty much get on air pretty quickly you know and learn things pretty quickly and have a sort of um, sur surround themselves with people who, who, who can help them not people who are being competitive so I think that's you know I would always say to people even if you know your aim is to be director general of the BBC or your aim is to have a fantastic podcasting series that goes out internationally whatever actually getting in on the ground floor and, and having ideas in a, in a community station, it should be a better atmosphere. And you can get your experience there and, and sort of build relationships. I mean, for me, community radio is about building relationships and, and, and thinking about what area you're in. So if you're in, you know, in um, a, a university in Sunderland or if you're in Bristol or in Newcastle, wherever you are, it's thinking, well, what is this station for and how can we how can we do some interesting things that sound great and and uh, help people to get where they want want to get
community radio is very different to the other sectors. It, it, quite often, it's a set, well, most of the time, it's a stepping stone for people. You can do your time in community radio, and then you can go on and earn some money in different areas. But it's a very different animal, really, community radio. And it's actually not so much for media careerists. It's for people who want to do things in their communities, want to, want to activate things, want to develop things, and want to um, make life better with with you know different groups so it's about working in partnership with people it's not about individualism what i've learned about fundraising um is you need to be already developing what you want funded before the fund the, the sort of call comes before the grant is open before so because then you're in a, a prime position to, to, you're, you're ready to go and what that means is you need to be sort of thinking about what you want to do and working with the particular people that you want to work with um, at now and, and it's not something you can do on your own you, uh, it really does need to ha you need to have partnerships with people so you need to be talking to people and saying well what you know ideally what would we like to do and how much do we need to do it and who who are we going to work with? Because most funders these days, and I'm, I suppose I'm talking more you know, about things like lottery funding, European funding, and some of the um, uh, research funding now, which actually links into communities, because the research councils now are interested in what's going on in community media and so on. Um, you need to have contact with them already, you know, and, and you need to show that you're already um, talking to people and and you've got some partners it, they're not uh, most funding they're not interested in individuals sometimes with artists it's an individual artist or a creative practitioner but on the whole they want to see that you're connected to different people so i th i think um the most successful funding is when you you get together in a group and what i've done is attached myself to more experienced people who are good at getting funding and I've said can I have a little bit of that funding and so I say I could do this and but can you put me in on your funding bid so I become a sort of junior partner in the funding bid so um, it's not you know they say right well we need this this and this from you so you can you know you give your CV and you give your um, you know your plan about what you would do with your particular bit of money but you're not responsible for the whole thing and then you learn how funding bids. So the next time you might feel a bit more confident about actually um, doing the whole thing on your own. So if you're an individual, you know, radio person or, or creative practitioner or artist, um, think about the kind of things you want to do and talk to people who've already had funding. Work with people you click with, you know, people that, you, that, that have the same motivations as you. And... Um, and then think about how you can apply for money. But you need to be a bit ahead of the game. Um, one of the things we've been doing in the Northeast is um, there's been a three-year project funded by Paul Hamlin Foundation, who are very interested in artists and creative practitioners and how they develop their skills. And that's called Artworks. And um, what we're now doing is running workshops and 
um, helping people to get more training and funding to do the kind of creative work they want. So for instance, um, we're running monthly sessions at the Glass Centre with free lunch for people in Sunderland who are interested in, in um, developing um, participatory type work uh, as, as artists and um, we're developing short courses and things like that for them. So it, it's, it's getting maybe meeting people in, in forums like that um, and finding people that you click with. I mean I've worked with two or three people over the last 20-25 years. I'm still working with them and you you know you get to know each other and, and you think yes we, we can apply for that because we've got the right sort of approach and um, we tell each other about things that are coming up and you'll find uh, once you've started writing particular paragraphs about what you do you can you know obviously use them again and things like that so I'd say think ahead connect up with people and don't be afraid of having a smaller being a small partner in a bigger project um, because that you can get experience from doing that I want to take you to the top of the a huge thank you once again to our guests this week, to Brian Talbot and to Caroline Mitchell. Also to our singer-songwriter, who this week is Sinead Livingston. If you want to hear more from Sinead, have a listen back to episode four, where she's telling you all about her background and her passion, which is community music. Let's fall asleep under the stars so go ahead and find us online. Our Twitter is at 99podcast. Our website is 99podcast.com. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, you'll hear every episode as soon as it's launched. And until next week, stay productive, stay awesome.